and welcome to episode 36 of the Story Not Forgotten podcast. We are brought to you by Capturing Legacies, because everyone has a story to tell, and it's time to tell yours. Visit CapturingLegacies.com to get started. This episode is also brought to you by MNP, accounting, consulting, and tax. Wherever business takes you, mnp.ca will be there. My name is Liam Rathgaber, partner and anthologist with Capturing Legacies, as well as your host. And joining me today is a veteran from the NHL. He played with the Detroit Red Wings and the Philadelphia Flyers. Since then, has found the I Got Mind project, Mr. Bob Wilkie. Bob, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Liam. I'm actually looking forward to this a lot. As have I. Well, because we do what we do without any ado, why don't you tell us a story? I guess when I think back about it, my story starts um, when I was about 32 years old and I really started to realize that uh, for years I had suffered with a lot of unknowns and what the direction was and how I had ended up in the the shape I was in. And my daughter was born and, and she was young and uh, I had retired from the game of hockey completely. I had tried the coaching thing for a little while and it didn't work out. I realized that that's not what I wanted to do with my life is be vulnerable anymore to the people in the game and my whole career and my future based on wins and losses. And it was then that I really started the discovery of what is this all about? What am I doing here? How do I make this better? What happened to me? Um, and it, you know, it, it was very fascinating to me because as I, as I started to meet people, as I started to learn, and as I started to ask questions, I just realized there was a whole bunch of things that I didn't know that um, the the information was fascinating, and I started to feel better almost immediately. Mm-hmm. You know, recognizing that um, leaving home at a young age, you know, wanting to be something at a young age uh, came with the price. And you know, people always say you got to make sacrifices and you got to pay the price, but they never tell you what that is. Uh, they never tell you where it's going to take you. They never tell you um, some of the decisions you're going to have to make, uh, some of the things that could possibly go wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and and working with young athletes now, and uh, you know, business owners, people, just people in life. I think what I've learned over the course of my 50 years has been invaluable. You know, there were so many times where I wonder what the hell is going on, and why do I have to deal with this, and I can't believe something like this is happening again. But, you know, they, they say hindsight's twenty twenty, and <laughs> being able to recognize and see all the, the different experiences that I had and really realize that uh, I am a risk taker. You know, if you, if you stand me on the ledge and you, you show me what's possible and what could happen, um, I'm, I'm a leaper. I'll jump. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've learned to give it a little more thought, <laughs> which has definitely helped. But, you know, still at the age of 50, still wanting to take risks and still wanting to do things that challenge me and you know, there's a certain way that I want to live. And I've realized over the course of my time that uh, I can choose to live that way. I don't have to wait for people to tell me it's okay. I don't have to listen to people who tell me that it's a dumb idea or it's never going to happen. Um, I can do what I what I want to do. And, you know, do you develop processes as you go and you use the experiences that you have in life to really get you where you want to go. And for me, you know, at the, at the young age of as long as I can remember, you know, two, three years old, the stories my parents tell me, uh, you know, running around the house with a bottle cap and a spoon playing hockey. And, <laughs> um, you know, as soon as I was old enough to get on skates, I was out front, you know, playing. And I feel like I was very fortunate because I fell in love with something very early. You know, I know there's a lot of people that I've worked with in the past that have just never found that in life. They've never found that love of something. Um, that gives you that drive and that passion. And I was lucky to do it at a very young age. 
and it 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 just it drove me um there was nothing i wanted more in the world i remember spending time with my dad which you know again was huge for me because i just love my dad so much he was such a uh caring and compassionate individual that you know saturday night watching hockey night in canada i mean that was a big deal in our house as it is for uh and has been for canadians for for a long long time but for me it really it really struck a chord and every time i watched and i listened on the tv i just kept saying you know what i'm going to do that one day that's going to be me one day and you know as i started to get a little bit older you know eight and nine and and started to separate myself from the kids my age and mm-hmm. Um, there was a year where they wanted to bump me up and, you know, make me play with the older kids because I, uh, I was that skilled and, and that passionate about it. And I think one of the things that really saved me was that uh, we, we decided not to do it. We tried it for a little while and realized that, you know what, I wasn't with my group of friends. Um, it Take wasn't the enjoyment a, out of it. It, it really did. You know, it was, it was not what, what the game was for me at that point. So to go back, I think, was a huge uh, saving grace for me because, you know, working with a lot of young athletes now, everybody's in such a hurry to get to the top as fast as they can. They don't realize that it does a lot more damage than you can possibly imagine. So, you, you know, I got to 10, 11 and, and really was doing some good things. Uh, my parents tell me that I was rated as one of the top peewees in Alberta, which is kind of crazy to think that people are judging 10 and 11 year olds, <laughs> but uh, they did it back then and they do it today. And um, I just kept working on my craft and, you know, we were winning and having success. So I got to learn how to win and, you know, winning city championships and tournaments and you know, being able to be a key contributor to those things uh, as part of the team really taught me a lot of valuable lessons at a young age. Um, that continued on to my uh, 12 and 13 year old age where you, uh, you play with a certain age group. And again, you know, was having very good success as an individual. We were having very good team success. The thing that I really started to learn was um, how crazy sports can make people. If I go back to the peewee, there was a coach that um, you know, he was a very intense guy. He was a very fun guy, but I tell you, he could get out of control really quick with his emotions. And we had an altercation where uh, I came off the bench and we were losing a game and he picked me up and threw me back on the ice and said, you don't come off until I tell you to come off. And it, it startled me um, because I had never had an adult do that to me before. Uh, I think the, the part that scared me the most was what happened in the locker room afterwards um, when mom stormed into the locker room and said, you don't ever do that to my son again. And, and watch these two adults go absolutely at each other, full bore, full anger, rage that I had never heard before in my life because my house wasn't like that growing up. And um, it, it startled me a little bit to think that I had that kind of power as a young man to make two people go completely crazy. Um, it was then that I started to realize that... that uh, I needed to watch. I needed to be a little more careful. I needed to um, maybe try a little bit harder so I didn't get that kind of reaction. So the people pleaser side of me really started to develop at that young age. And, you know, when I got into 12 and 13, the same thing was happening where the coaches were becoming very upset if I wasn't able to do what they expected me to do game in and game out. And because, you know, you're taught to respect your coach and your elders Mm -hmm. and you never talk back and you never say things. Well, I learned... Uh, certain ways that I could push their buttons just like they were pushing mine. Which is fair. A coach that would humiliate me in the in a rink full of people by screaming at me at the top of his lungs, um, I could go out and take a stupid penalty and be smiling as I'm sitting in the penalty box watching him lose his shit. <laughs> um, you know, that, that started to become my way of getting even with people. It wasn't necessarily verbally 
Um, but I started to pay attention what would drive them crazy. And because they were driving me crazy, well, then I was going to drive them crazy. Well, and they're trying to take away what you love, which is the, just the love of the game. So if winning is all that they love, then you can take that right back. You know, and, and working with young athletes today and, and kind of going back and giving back and trying to teach people, that's the one thing that I've really realized is that, um, you know, we all get into it for the right reason. You know, our kids are cute and it's fun and it's good, <laughs> but it doesn't take long for it to turn. And that turn you know, is one of the prices that we have to pay. It's one of the sacrifices that we have to pay. There, there's very few um, families, unfortunately, that I've gotten to meet out there that have very strong, healthy relationships the entire time that their young person is in sports. Um, eventually, it's going to turn the family unit against each other, whether it's a dad that's upset the way the, the athlete is contributing or not contributing or performing or not performing. Um you know, sometimes it's mom, but that can cause rifts like it did in our house where mom realized that it was a very toxic environment for me to be in. But dad kept saying, but he's good at it and he's got a future in it. So we're going to keep going with it. And um, it got to the point where mom wouldn't come to the hockey games anymore and she didn't want to support what we were doing. Um, so, you know, to watch that happen at 14 years old where it splits a family apart uh, was extremely difficult too. you know, uh, another trauma. Um, well, that's a lot horse. for a kid to carry on his shoulders too, because your name would be right in the middle of that entire argument. No different than kids that deal with parents and divorce. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same type of thing where the kids are kind of caught in the middle. Yeah. All I wanted to do was play hockey. I was good at hockey. I just wanted to keep <laughs> playing hockey because I had a dream was to be on TV. Well, and it was still a game for you at that point. There was still joy in it. There was a lot of joy in it. Um, as I got to be 15, it got a lot more challenging. You know, you know as you go, the competition gets tougher. Uh, there's fewer kids that can can make that level that are capable. Um, and I was fortunate. I was big, I was strong, and I was passionate. Mm -hmm. So I was able to keep uh, keep on my path. I, I played midget AAA as a 15-year-old, which is, is kind of a rare thing to do, and was having good success. Uh, you know, the next challenge that came for me was playing with, with older kids because I had always played with my my own age group. So all of a sudden I'm playing with 16 and 17-year-olds that didn't like the fact that a 15-year-old was taking their time, mm -hmm. was getting more attention and more opportunities than they were. So the, that first real nasty competition in the locker room uh, started at the same age that I was going through my first year of high school. So, you know, it was complete chaos. Um, again, the people pleaser and wanting to be a part of the groups and accepted. So you start drinking because people are drinking. You start trying drugs because people are trying drugs. And, you know, being an athlete, you're always considered to be the life of the party and everybody wants you at the party. So it was a role that um, uh, I kind of liked, you know, it had some appeal to it. Uh, <laughs> the girls were pretty and, you know, being popular was, was a good thing. So, you know, that, that first year of high school was uh, a very interesting one for me. There was a lot of different experiences, you know, f as there are for most people getting into high school, you know, uh, having experiences with girls for the first time and getting uh, driven home and dropped off the front door drunk for the first time and <laughs> um, staying out after curfew and getting caught by your coach for the first time. You know, these were all things that were starting to happen to me. And um, I think that was the time where I really kind of, for the first time in my career, uh, I guess if you call it that at that age, where I started to lose a little bit of focus. Mm -hmm. And um, the darker side or, or the funner side started to be a little bit more appealing to me, whereas before it was never a question of, you know, being at home and training and doing those things. And the next year playing major junior at 16 years old, uh, 
um, you know, again, playing with all older kids, 17 to 20 year olds, um, taking ice time away. So here I am in that same situation. Uh, I was fortunate to have a great coach um, by the name of Sandy Huckle, who was very caring and one of the best coaches that I ever had that really nurtured me as a player and allowed me to be who I was. Unfortunately, he got sick and had to leave, and, and that made things worse because they brought in a coach who was inexperienced, which caused the older guys to be even more um, bullying and, and you know just taking control and doing whatever they want. Uh, Takes the reins off. Well, the, the inmates were running the asylum. Mm-hmm. It was basically what it was. And you know it was hard for me coming from a background of winning to go to a team that only won 14 games all year out of 65. You know, So that was a big... Again, learning experience. The first real injury I had separating my shoulder and being out for six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, being touted uh, at the end of the year to be a potential first-round draft pick in the NHL. Um, so it was a real roller coaster of emotions <laughs> that year. <clears throat> Caused things to go uh, pretty well. Had a good summer, trained real hard. Uh, went into training camp the next year, and it didn't work out in, in Calgary here. And I ended up getting traded to Swift Current, and that's really... Uh, when life started to kind of spin out of control. Um, I remember I got traded, um, got called into the general manager's office and he said, we, we've traded you and I was furious. And um, I found out that I was traded to Swift Current who they were playing that night. And I asked <laughs> if I could play for the other team because had a little bit of undead. Uh, and uh, they said, no, you can't. That's part of the deal is you're not allowed to play tonight. I went over to the visitor's locker room and uh, the gentleman that I was introduced to was Graham James. And I had never had the feeling that I had when I met Graham James with any other individual in, in my history of uh, uh, being on the planet. Um, my stomach turned, my skin crawled, uh, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And, um, you know, it would, it would prove to be right. You know, that thing they call intuition mm-hmm. really is a valuable thing. And um, went home that night and we had a lot of arguments again in the house about what was the right thing to do leaving home at a young age. And... Um, again, dad and I won that, that fight. Uh, you know, here I was expecting. You had precedent. Well, (laughs) you know, the, the, the dream that I had had at a two-year-old chasing the bottle cap around all of a sudden was becoming a reality, um, and being expected to be a first round draft pick in the NHL draft that year. So for me, it was a no brainer. Um, really wasn't much of a conversation for me. It was more listening to mom express her opinions <laughs> of uh, all the reasons why I shouldn't go. And, you know, again, not listening. A lot of times I found working with young athletes, they get to that point where when it's in your head, you're doing something, you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter who's trying to give you advice. So I, I moved to Swift Current and I was very fortunate. I was uh, living with a very cool family. They were very young, Bob Harriman and Janine Harriman. And they had two little girls, Carrie and Susie, who were three and five at the time. And uh, you know, growing up with a younger brother, I always had a real good bond with my brother. We never fought. We always got along and played together. So to all of a sudden have these two beautiful little girls uh, to watch cartoons with and <laughs> to get into mischief with, uh, I think helped me a lot. It was a struggle being away from home. Uh, Graham James was was proving to be um, quite a handful. He was one of the most challenging coaches I had ever had just in the fact that uh, he didn't communicate positively with you. You know, I remember the first game um, that I played with Swift Current was in Saskatoon and I had four points that game. And, um, you know, the only comment that he had for me was, you better keep that up. Um, so that that kind of turned, yeah, <laughs> right. 
that kind of turned my stomach and, and made me worry a little bit because that's not a comment. Usually when you score four points in your first game, it's like, boy, we did Good the right start. thing. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Unfortunately, it was not that. Um, so, you know, like most kids and people, when they go off to college or, or leave home for the first time, there's that little bit of struggle and adjustment. And so I went through that and came home at Christmas time and was with my friends and realized that I wasn't missing anything and went back and, and was invigorated for the second half. Um, there was a couple of guys on the team that I had really gravitated towards with Scotty Kruger and Trent Cressy. They were two of the better players. They were our, our leading scorers and really getting a lot of attention in the league at that time. Uh, Joe Sackick was there again. You know, he was he was <laughs> lights out. And Peter Soberlack was another guy that we had traded for from Kamloops. So we had a really good team and we were kind of doing things in, as an expansion team, you know, because they had moved from Lethbridge that year that people weren't expecting. We were winning a lot of hockey games. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got on the bus uh, December 30th in 1986, going to Regina, just like every other road trip we had ever taken. And the weather was a little bad, but, you know, we had traveled on those, those roads before. And so it wasn't overly concerning. Um, and and then my world changed. Uh, we were five minutes out of town and um, listening to my new Walkman that I got from Christmas and, and reading my new Stephen King book that I got for Christmas. And... Um, getting ready to play. We were excited, like I said, to, to have a really good second half and make the dreams become true. And uh, the bus slid off the road. And the last thing I remember uh, was Trent Cressy was sitting right next to me, um, kind of like we're sitting in the booth here. It wasn't much bigger. And mm-hmm. uh, he stood up and said, hold on, it'll be okay. And uh, the next thing I, I can remember, uh, or the last thing that I can remember, was uh, seeing everybody floating through the air. So when we had hit the approach road, it had catapulted everybody out of their seats. And um, the unfortunate part was that's that's what broke the necks of, of Scotty and Trent because they hit their heads on the luggage rack uh, mm-hmm. with such violent force being at the back of the bus. Um, it had thrown them through the back window and the other two guys that were playing cards, uh, young kids, uh, great kid, Brent Ruff, um, was 16 years old, just turned 16 years old, and he was one of the reasons we were having success as a team. And Chris Mantica, our, our tough guy, and uh, Chief was, uh, you know, protecting all us young guys and the guys that didn't want to fight, and he was willing to step up whenever he, whenever he could. And um, they were trapped underneath the bus. So when, when we woke up, uh, it was Peter Soberlack uh, woke me up, and he said, Wilkes, you know, you're, you're, you're pretty bad. Your face is bloodied. Can you stand up? And I tried to stand and could barely stand. And, um, he says, Wilkes, this is, this is bad. This is not good. And, uh, uh, it was chaos. Like you see in the movies, anytime mm-hmm. there's some sort of accident like that, yelling and screaming, and it was freezing cold and the windows were smashed out and the bus was on its side. And, um, we were yelling at everybody to get off the bus and, you know, they couldn't hear because they were all yelling too. And uh, we heard a noise down behind us and, and we turned and looked back and, and Chris, uh, there was a seat and, and the seat kind of flew up and it was Chris Mantica and he was trapped uh, underneath the bus and uh, all we could see was his upper torso and he had blood trickling out of his mouth and, um, you know, Peter and I started screaming, you know, get off the bus, someone's under the bus, chief's under the bus. Um, and we, we turned around and, and we were both uh, petrified. Um, there wasn't anything we could do for him. And that vision haunted me for 20 plus years, uh, for a bunch of different reasons. You know, the first was he was a teammate and why didn't I kneel next to him and, 
and tell him it was going to be okay and hold his hand um, rather than being petrified and cowering away. Um, knowing that, that that was his last vision was here was this guy that was tough and strong and, and our protector out there. And, and when he needed someone, uh, I wasn't able to provide that. Um, so that was, that was not easy to watch someone die is never an easy thing. Uh, um, we got off the bus, uh, told everybody what was happening and I collapsed. And that was the last thing I remember. I woke up in the hospital. Um, there was three of us that spent the night in the hospital, uh, Kurt Lacton, who was the captain, uh, Dougie Levins, uh, who was the interim, uh, trainer manager, uh, and myself, we were the only three that had to stay overnight in the hospital, which is, which is quite amazing. That's pretty remarkable. Considering the, the, the chaos that, uh, ensued. Joe Sack was on the bus, Shelly was on, Sheldon Kennedy was on the bus, um, you know, so there were some names and, and Graham, you know, kept coming around to all the rooms looking for Joe and Sheldon. Those were his, uh, you know, players that he really enjoyed being around. And we used to tease them all the time, you know, because they were buddy, buddy. And um, so it was really disheartening because he came in the room and he never asked how I was. He just, the first question he asked is, where's Joe and Sheldon? Have you seen Joe and Sheldon? So I kind of verified, you know, what a prick he was. And, uh, um, you know, the feelings that I had for him or the bad feelings I had for him. Um the, that night in in the hospital was probably one of the um, most emotional times I think I'd ever had because, uh, you know, I kept reliving what was going on. And Kurt, uh, Kurt and I had played the year before in Calgary together. So we knew each other. We were teammates before and then both ended up in Swift Current. And he, you know, Kurt, uh, they, they call him a hero that day. And I know that he hates that. But, you know, he was one of the first off the bus and he was trying to help Scotty and Trent who were thrown from the bus. And uh, revive them and <clears throat> do those things. And, um, we talked a lot about it and, and, you know, we felt so bad for Dougie because he was just filling in for our trainer that was gone. So, you know, here this God awful, uh, event had happened and, and we were alone and, you know, the teammates all went home with their families and the parents drove in. And, um, so everybody was kind of segmented and separated. And, um, it, it, I, I remember distinctly being very afraid to go to sleep that night because I didn't know mm-hmm. um, what was going to come. Um, you know, you, you grow up and you have bad dreams and mom and dad are there and you run to the room screaming. And uh, there was a couple of nights, uh, a couple of instances that night where I woke up screaming. Um, there was a lot of nights the years after to follow that, uh, um, that I woke up screaming uh, with that vision. Uh, the most recent tragedy with Humboldt, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the eerie similarities, the Broncos. I remember uh, Kevin Yellowaga, a friend of mine, um, texted me and said, did you hear about the Broncos? And, and right away my stomach turned and I said, the Swift Current. He said, no, the Humboldt Broncos, there was a bus accident. And um, it, it, you know, it took me right back to the day of, of our accident, you know, and all the emotions and the very clear visions and um, I remember that night again, not wanting to go to sleep because I didn't know if those nightmares were going to return. Um, after the accident, uh, it was very difficult, went home, uh, became very sullen. You know, I was typically a very outgoing, very happy-go-lucky, fun kid to be around and, and that all completely changed. Um, you know, I'm fascinated, uh, uh, I lived in the States for a bunch of years and, and when, you know, the wars were going on, the Iraq war, I mean, I couldn't believe that there was actually war going on, but to hear these guys coming back and they kept, they kept calling this thing PTSD, PTSD. And, and I, I remember watching a, a show on HBO 
and it was specifically all around PTSD and what it meant, but they were all referring to soldiers and, and war and uh, going as far back as the First World War, and they called it shell shock and, you know, all the different things. And, and I realized at that point, and, you know, here I am 35 years old, um, that I was suffering from PTSD. Um, what proceeded to happen was um, I didn't care anymore. Uh, the dream didn't matter to me anymore. Um, my agent was trying to get me to come out. My, my billet Bob was an RCMP officer. He was first on the scene after the accident. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a lot of experience with, with tragedies like this. So he was trying to explain it to me. Um, I just didn't care anymore. And I tried to quit. Um, you know, being an elite athlete at that level, uh, everybody talked me out of it. You know, this will be a decision that you'll regret for the rest of your life. You know, this is something that you, you, you don't want to pass up. You'll regret it forever. You know, you won't be able to live with yourself. Um, I understand what they were trying to do, but the guilt and shame didn't help uh, yeah. <laughs> that comes along with that sort of thing. Um, I ended up getting drafted that year. We made the playoffs. Um, there wasn't a, a game that we went into that year that uh, um, we weren't crying during warmups. Um you know, because everywhere we went, we got a standing ovation. And mm-hmm. the last thing we wanted to be recognized as was heroes. Um, we lived. We didn't do anything special. Um, we were lucky. We could have been just like our other teammates and and dead. So it was a very difficult time. Uh, I got drafted. I was happy to be drafted. Uh, still, you know, there was something going on inside me. Uh, the... The emotions were um, anger, um, frustration. At that point, uh, the alcohol was very much helping. Um, So there was copious amounts of alcohol. Um, At that point, you know, uh, people started to label me as um, a drunk, uh, a problem, um, no work ethic, uh, you know, in the game of hockey, uh, in in sports in general, you know, if if you're not doing what they what they want you to do, they tend to label you. And um, the unfortunate part was I I was labeled a, as such. And um, you know, you get told you're a piece of shit long enough, you become a piece of shit. And uh, when I got told I was a disappointment, when I got told I was a failure, when I got told that I was never gonna be good enough, when I got told that I was lazy, when I got told that you know all these different things that people were telling me and and trying to motivate me and kind of snap me out of it. Um, that was the self-image that I had formed. So, um, you know, working hard and, and doing all the right things um, and not meeting expectations became such a challenge that when people were telling me um, all the bad things that I was doing, it was a whole lot easier to meet those expectations. <laughs> so, you know, unfortunately, that's what I became. Uh, for a lot of years, uh, you know, I turned pro. We won the Memorial Cup in 1989. I think that was probably one of the greatest accomplishments um, without the Kruger brothers, without the Kruger family, without uh, some of the good people in Swift Current. Um, you know, some of my teammates in Swift, Peter Soberlack, uh, uh, you know, I don't know that I would have um, gotten to have that experience. Um, to be called the best team in the world um, was something that I had never accomplished. The best team in the city, the best team in the province, um, but never the best team in the world. And, and that was a big thing for us. Um, unfortunately, you know, when, when we parted, uh, we were all on our own. Um, together, everybody knew what we had gone through, what it stood for, you know, what we were playing for. When I got to be a pro, uh, that was all gone. Um, you couldn't talk about it. 
Um, everybody had forgotten about it. Mm-hmm. And so you had to try and live this whole other life with, with these things going in your mind in the background, constantly, you know, running and running and running and running and, and the movie just wouldn't stop. <clears throat> so again, you know, got to be a real, uh, good disappointment real quick. Um, like I say, the alcohol, uh, drugs had, uh, kind of kicked in at that time because the alcohol didn't always work. Um, so there was a lot of mixing going on. Um, it was in excess, you know, it wasn't a couple of beers with buddies. It was, uh, to get to the numbest point that I possibly could. And, um, you know, when you're a pro, you get to learn how to play guilty. They call it, uh, where you go out and you get absolutely hammered the night before a game. And, um, you know, you play with the shame and the guilt and the next day you, you work real hard and have a good game. And that's pretty much how my pro career went was, uh, um, you know, just playing guilty. Um, you know, again, people had stepped in and, and you know, I, I would say that they tried to help. Um, they never asked the right question. Um, you know, what they what they used to say, and <laughs> it's kind of funny now, but, you know, what the fuck's wrong with you? Um, it was never, how can I help? It was never, are you okay? Um, you're going to blow it. You know, uh, I can't believe you're doing this. Um, so, yeah, just, you know, I, I, again, another real healthy dose of, uh, not meeting people's expectations and um, growing up being a people pleaser from a very young age when you realize that you're not going to be able to please uh, what it feels like anybody, um, you, you you feel worthless. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, uh, um, I was playing in the American Hockey League. I had been traded from Detroit uh, where we had won a championship uh, in the, in the minors. Um, had my first back surgery and I got traded from Detroit to Philadelphia because Detroit felt like I was, they were done investing any time and effort into me. And I went to Philadelphia and was having a really good year with a coach by the name of Mike Eaves, um, who was a former Calgary flame. And Mike really saw that I was in some pain and was trying to help and was meeting with me. And, uh, I remember again, feeling very guilty while going into his office, uh, um, you know, barely able to, being able to focus on his face because I was so drunk from the night before. And, um, he, he kind of got me straight and I was having some good success in the American hockey league. And I got called up to Philadelphia and, um, we were playing in Detroit and got in late one night and my roommate wasn't there. And I remember sitting in, uh, the Pontchartrain or the, the Renaissance hotel in downtown Detroit and overlooking the city. And, um, you know, at that time, there's no cell phones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't call and tell my parents that I had been called up. Um, nobody knew where I was. My parents had moved. So when I had tried to call them, the house number had changed. So <laughs> uh, I didn't know where they were. And uh, that was really the first time where the suicidal thoughts started to come. And I thought, you know, if I kill myself tonight, who's really going to notice? You know, there's nobody even here. There was no trainer. They didn't know that I got in from the, from the uh, being called up okay. Mm-hmm. Nobody called to check. And you know, I, I just uh, assumed that I was going to be um, dealing with the same disappointment. I thought, you know what, now now would be a good time to do it. Um, fortunately, I didn't. Um, those thoughts went on for a long time. Um, you know, I traveled throughout uh, North America and Europe for the next bunch of years playing, um, not because I love the game, but because I didn't know what else I was going to do. Um, which means you're never 100% committed. So mm-hmm. it's just uh, a job at that yeah, point. Well, that's that's all it was. Uh, you know, that was a good uh, six, seven years of that, and 
Um, thankfully, uh, I, I met a good woman. Uh, Mikey was probably the only person in my life that uh, didn't sugarcoat things, um, was straight up and uh, liked to travel and have fun. And I really felt uh, for the first time in a long time that I was loved by somebody. Um, we had a daughter uh, four or five years later after we had traveled around. So we ended up in Pensacola, Florida. I was playing and coaching. Again, not really happy, but it was paying the bills. Uh, I wasn't getting rich. You know, you're making $1,200 every two weeks. People think because you're a professional hockey player that you make a lot of money. Um, there wasn't too many years that I didn't make $45,000, and that was about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but Sadie was born, my daughter. And, uh, you know, going back to Susie and Carrie, the, the little girls in Swift Current, um, uh, I was so thankful to have the daughter first and, and Sadie and I have been connected ever since. And, and it was really then that it kind of woke me up and said, Oh, you know, I'd never felt a love like that before. You know, people say when you become a parent, you'll, you'll know what we're talking about. And <laughs> I finally did know what they were talking about. And it was, it was then that I really started to realize that, you know, I needed to get my shit together. Uh, I didn't need to live like this. And you know what, now that I'm responsible for this young life that I needed to do things better and I needed to learn a better way. Um, spent a couple more years in the game, uh, really wasn't good experience, you know, just a continuation, um, never really learned how to deal with it. Never really liked the mindset of it. Um, you're always at the whim of it. You know, they preach loyalty. Um, and yet when you're not meeting their needs, they're, they're quick to get rid of you. And they Uh, preach that you're loyal to them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and, and I think that really, uh, it's funny that you say that, um, I think a lot of my relationships were like that. You know, they were one-way relationships. Uh, I think that's why I struggled with respect mm-hmm. um, for myself first and then for a lot of other people after that. Um, well, I it's know because it's, in that world, you're the product. Yeah. yeah. So you need to feed into them, but they just need to take away. Absolutely. And, and I know that's why a lot of young athletes, you know, struggle within the game and especially after the game mm-hmm. um, because there is no self-image. There is no self-worth. Uh, sure, these guys can go and make six million bucks, and I tell you what, that's great that you get six million bucks. But it comes to the point where you don't you don't care about the six million bucks. Um, you want to be a part of a team. You want to have success. You want to have fun. You want to be able to play. And the mind games that go on, and the things that aren't said, and you got to read between the lines. It's a huge challenge, and that's never going to change. Um, but what we can do a better job is educating the athletes of today uh, in the ways to deal with it, um, so it's not as stressful. You know, they can play the game. They understand that this is a game, um, both on and off the court, ice, field, whatever it is. Um, and, and it works. You know, I've been working with young athletes for a long time. And when you teach them the life skills and they're, and they're eager to learn, um, they can thrive in those atmospheres that, you know, aren't the best. They may be a little bit toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, they're definitely a challenge. Um, there's not a lot of truth in sports. Um, you know, people are constantly telling you what you want to hear. You're constantly telling them what, what they want to hear. So, um, you know, there's a lot of challenges for a young person to, especially in their first experiences in trying to become an individual and a human being, a good part of society. They're not being taught a lot of those things that people hope that sport's going to teach them. In fact, it teaches them the exact opposite. Um, so, you know, when, when I started to find some answers, I started to realize that I could help athletes with a part of the game um, beyond skill development, beyond teaching a system, um, to teach them the life skills, to teach them the life lessons. And that's how I got Mind Was Born. Mm-hmm. 
um, you know, I got mine stands for awareness. It stands for uh, truth. It stands for respect. Um, you know, there's so many different things that I got mine represents, but first and foremost, it's about who you are, um, doing the right thing for you uh, and for others. Um, you know, it makes a big difference in people's lives when they start to learn these skills. And it's amazing um, how rare they are. You know, people say common sense, Liam. Common yeah, sense is common pretty sense uncommon. Common sense is pretty uncommon. It's very uncommon. <laughs> um, and so, you know, in the athletic world, I felt like I had a real opportunity to do something that a lot of people weren't doing out there uh, in a very special way because I had all these, you know, life's experiences. Uh, I wasn't a sports psychologist. I wasn't a psychologist. I didn't go to university and, and just learn from a book and, you know, this is how this works and that. Um, like I said at the beginning, I'm a risk taker. I'm a mm -hmm. jumper. And every opportunity I had, I jumped. And every one of those experiences um, brought me knowledge. Well, essentially, the like the way that that I was looking at it is that I got mind is sort of where your story begins, which is a really fascinating thing because there are so many people out there whose dream it is. Uh, I'm, one day I'm going to be in the NHL. That's it. That is that's the 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 final chapter in the story for so many people that that's as far ahead as they can think is how can I get there, and. Your story is a fascinating one up to that point, but that's the introduction. Yeah. So tell everyone what exactly is I Got Mind. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sum it up. Give us well, the elevator you know speech. What? It, it's awesome. It really is. Um, I went and as I was going through this transformation, I was really starting to feel good. I was really starting to gain momentum. A friend of mine gave me the book, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Mm -hmm. It's a classic. Um, I call it my Bible. Uh, it's on my bookshelf. Uh, I read it often. Um, as I find, as I grow as a person, every chapter reads a little bit differently now, like a good book always does. Mm -hmm. And that was the start. And, and, you know, I started to think about, well, how can I help these athletes different? How can I apply this to to their lives. And what I started to realize was that I did have a lot of good experiences that they, I could use them for something um, good. And my mom had sent me the movie, The Secret. Mm -hmm. And there was a gentleman in that movie by the name of Bob Proctor. And it was funny because every time Bob Proctor came on the screen, it was like he was standing inside my head with a megaphone. Um, I've learned to become a big uh, believer in signs. When you have awareness and you're paying attention, there's signs everywhere of directions and decisions. And um, with Bob screaming inside my head, I said, I guess I'm supposed to find out who Bob Proctor <laughs> is. And uh, I, I got on the internet the next morning and I researched it and I found out that Bob um, teaches programs. And so I contacted the office that day and I said, you know, uh, this is who I am. This is what I've been through and this is what I, uh, I'd like to know more of. And they said, well, you know what? It's great. We're having training um, next week. We have a couple of spots left open and we'd love you to come attend. Um, I assume that meant that I got to go for free. <laughs> um, so the next day they said, we'll have someone from the office call you and go over all the details. And I'm so excited. And uh, they called me the next day and I said, this is great and super. And they said, okay, we get you signed up and you're in the hotel and you're in the system. Um, it's $20,000. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I was completely dejected. Uh, completely frustrated. I had been working with some athletes at that time. And I remember a dad coming up to me and said, listen, if there's anything I can ever do for you, I so believe in what you're doing. Just ask me. And so right away he popped into my head and said, you know what? I'm going to go talk to John. It was John Rickards, uh, fantastic man. 
And I called him up and I said, John, I found something and I need your help. He says, come see me. So I went to his office and I had all the materials and literature and what I wanted to do and you know what the business plan was. And I said, but, but it's $20,000. And uh, he proceeded to open his desk, take out his checkbook, <laughs> and he wrote a check for $20,000. And he said, go do it. And I had never had anybody really do anything like that for me before. Um, it, it, it changed a lot of things for me that day. Uh, the belief pattern, the, the um, skepticism I had, the opinion of society, uh, all completely shifted. And I went down to the training and it was one of the best weeks I had ever had. Um, I remember several times leaving uh, the teachings and going up to my room and crying because what I was learning, I couldn't believe that somebody couldn't teach me this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought about all the opportunities that I had missed. And if they had only been able to teach me this little basic information about how to control your attitude and, um, how to communicate and the filters that we have and, and all the different things, um, I probably wouldn't have had to have gone through all the shit that I had to go through, <laughs> uh, to get where I was. But, um, I was coaching, Uh, I came back from my training. Uh, We were on a bus trip to Montreal and I sat down and I wrote a curriculum of all the different things that I felt um, would help athletes. And and today that program is called Success Strategies. It's still the one that I use. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I'm on version 28 right now (laughs) um, because as you learn more and and work with people, you start to learn um, what works and and how it works. And um, so I've been teaching Success Strategies for uh, 15 years. Uh, to young athletes and business owners and um, teaching basically common sense. Um, you know, the, the different roles that we play, the habits that we have, the, um, how to control your attitude, what it really means, the emotions, um, having a positive and strong self-image, um, communicating and setting boundaries and um, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable. So many different things. The uh, After the Humboldt bus accident, uh, I had spoken about how I was scared to go to sleep that night. Sheldon Kennedy had called right away. Uh, Darren Kruger, whose brother was in the bus accident, was in Okotoks. He's scouting for the uh, Calgary Flames, called him right away. We got on the phone with Peter Soberlack uh, after Darren came to the house. And Sheldon said, we got to go. We got to go help. And um, I remember Peter, Darren, and I were, were, were a little bit hesitant. What what the hell can we do? How are we going to help? And he's like, you know what? Like, we've got the lived experience. We have to go help these people. They're in pain. We got to go. Mm-hmm. So we all agreed. We said, you know what? We're going to go. We don't know where we're going to go. We don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to go. Uh, amazing how tied and connected this was. Bob Harriman, my billet, uh, was living in Saskatoon. Uh, Susie Harriman, that cute little three-year-old girl, mm-hmm is now a surgeon and was on call that night that the bus accident happened. So as the players were being flown into Saskatoon, uh, she was the doctor that was receiving all these kids. Um, Pat Noje, uh, who was on the bus, uh, does very well with the Saskatoon police. Um, I'm going to butcher his rank because I don't understand the (laughs) ranks, but uh, uh, Pat's very well respected. Um, so we contacted Pat and said, listen, we want to come. He arranged for us to be able to get into the hospital and see the kids. We were the first people to see the kids in, in the ICU unit. And I remember walking in there and it was it was the same as, as we went through. And these parents and the family and friends, you know, just devastated and crushed. And, and you know, seeing the kids. And uh, there was one young man, Lane um, 
Matichuk that I had worked with personally as one of my students and was a product of the Medicine Hat Tigers who Darren had actually drafted. Um, and we remember, you know, walking in and seeing the mom and dad and hugs and crying and, and looking at Lane and Krugs and I looked at each other and said, that, that doesn't even look like Lane. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we met Ryan uh, Straczynski that day and uh, they had told Ryan that he was paralyzed and um, was just an amazing young man because he said, uh, I guess I'm going to the Olympics as a sledge hockey player. Um, you know, just on and on and on to, to see the different uh, uh, things again that life throws at us. We, we proceeded to go to Humboldt um, and spent some time there and we met some of the parents and turns out, uh, you know, one of the parents um, of one of the young men that died um, was a guy that I grew up with, Chris Joseph. Um, and I remember Chris, you know, we were catching up and, and he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I help with the mental aspect of the game. And, and he proceeded to tell me a story how, um, one of his last conversations with Jackson, uh, as they were riding up to Nippon was, you know, he was quite upset. He didn't think the coach was going to put him in the lineup and wasn't sure how to deal with it. And, and it was at that point where I said, we got to go and educate some people. That's enough. We got to go, we got to go teach this mental aspect. We got to teach people how to deal with it. We got to. Um, uh, make the game better through education. We have to get these parents and players and coaches information that's going to help uh, everybody within the game. And the I Got Mine tour was born. And uh, what the tour is all about, uh, I called a friend of mine, Kelly Rudy, and I said, Kelly, I got this great idea. Um, this is what I want to do. And he said, that sounds great, Bob. I'm in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I called a friend of mine, uh, Leslie, uh, uh, who plans events. And I said, Leslie, can you help me with this? And and she said, I can totally make that happen. And it, and it was funny because it seemed like the doors opened because everywhere I went with this idea, there was nothing but love and support for it. And so, you know, we've we've had our first show. Uh, Calgary 18th was the first show. Um, couldn't sleep. <laughs> um, had gotten out of some of my other commitments that, you know, financially were paying the bills and decided that I wanted to, again, take this risk. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so a lot of sleepless nights hoping that this was the right thing. And, you know what? We had a fantastic event. Um, it exceeded all of my expectations. Uh, everybody there was touched in one way or another about the storytelling and the information and um, how we become mentally ill through life. And now we're on to our next one. We're in Edmonton, November 29th. Um, you know, being a business owner for my entire life, you know, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've rejigged it where we're going to spend some time in Alberta. We're going to go to Red Deer and Medicine Hat and Lethbridge and um, developing great relationships with, uh, um, you know, some fantastic sports organizations that are seeing this as a valuable thing. Hockey Calgary, uh, Hockey Alberta, um, Alberta Volleyball, Alberta Basketball, Edmonton Sport, uh, the Canadian Mental Health Association. Um uh, the Matheson Center for Mental Health, uh, Hull Services. You know, there's just so many people that have jumped on board and said, you know what, let's do this thing. Um, so that's what we're going to do is we're going to travel across Canada and meet all sorts of fantastic people and share some information that's going to change some lives and, and hopefully uh, produce a little bit more common sense. Mm-hmm. Well, and we'll make sure to get uh, the links into the liner notes so that people can see all the tour dates and where, where you're going to be and when you're going to be there. Uh, what is the website for that? Uh, the website they can go to is www.igotmind.ca. Great. Well, thank you very much for sharing your story and taking the time. Uh, it really peels back the layers and, and gives people an idea of what it's really like because all that most people see is the glitz and glamour 
and they, they see the action of the game and they don't see the toll that it actually takes on people. So it's a, it's a very important lesson and you're doing some very important things. Um, do you have anything else that you would like to add regarding the tour or, uh, anything that you would like people to know? Any, anything else, uh, where people can find you or learn about you. Yeah, you know, again, uh, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, it's all under I Got Mind. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying to build a community. Kelly Rudy, I think, said it best after our Calgary show is um, it's a responsibility we have uh, as human beings on this earth to to make it better. Mm-hmm. And we're starting a movement and we need as many people as we can jump in and joining our movement. Um, it's about promoting mental health. It's about... Uh, it's about showing a little more compassion. It's about showing a little more patience um, with ourself um, first so that we can show it for others. Mm-hmm. Um, love truly does change things for the better. And, um, you know, what we want to do is spread that uh, that message of uh, that there's a little bit of hope out there. It doesn't need to be as heavy and dark and um, as daunting as it as it is. You know, life's tough. Um when you make it tough, mm-hmm. when you realize that these are experiences and this is what life's all about, it's not so bad. Well, and you've you've really been through the worst of it, and uh, and it's it's inspiring to see you stepping forward and making sure that what you've been through, that no one else is going to have to have it that low, and you're making the world a better place. Yeah. So thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And thank all of you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have. If you have, head over to iTunes or the Google Play Store or wherever it is that you get your podcasts from. Hit that subscribe button so that you never miss a future episode. While you're there, we would absolutely love it if you would leave us a rating or a review. The more of those that we have, the higher we'll appear in the search results, allowing us to find more guests and bring more stories to more of you. If you have a story that you'd like to share on the show, get a hold of me at liam at capturinglegacies.com and we will get you on. And until next time, remember, everyone's got a story to tell, and it's time to tell yours.